All right. Just rub my nose in it. I live in Houston. That's right. Um, I think, in fact, I think Matt has me come uh, preach in July or August just so he can hear my litany of complaints about what summer in Houston is like. So how many of you, um, anyone ever lived in Houston? Oh, wow. So you got out of it as fast as you like. So um, how about, how many, have you ever survived a Houston summer? Right? It's all you can, oh my goodness, pregnant, that's, that's, oh my goodness, blessings upon you. So, um, yes, uh, Houston is, it doesn't just get hot. Like, I grew up in Central Texas, so I'm used to the heat, but it's, it's the humidity, right? It's, it's, it, oh, it gets humid in Austin. No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The, uh, the, they have a term for it down there. It's called air you can wear, right? <laughs> air you can wear. Um, I prefer to call it um, living on the surface of the sun underwater. Okay, because, because people say, you know, oh, Arizona, Arizona, that's a dry heat. Yeah, well, well so is an oven, right? But, um, but yeah, there's something, so probably the most vivid description of what summer in Houston is like, gave it to me by a, a friend of mine at, at the church we go to there. He said, summer in Houston is like living in the nostrils of God on a jog. <laughs> okay. So let that soak in for a second, right? Let that, all you runners out there just think about, imagine living in the nostrils of God on a jog. So, um, so imagine wants to hear me, hear how much I'm suffering there. It's, it's normally in this time uh, of the year when, when I start thinking about January. Um, I, I, I think about January not just for like a little, nice little cool weather, right? Like I think, think about the time when it'll be like 65 degrees and I can wear my sweater. Um, I, I went to a conference one time up north in November, and that's when I realized I'd lived in Texas so long that I no longer owned a coat. I had a jacket, but didn't have a coat, right? And there's a difference, evidently. So, um, <laughs> anyway. Um, no, I think about January. You know, my wife finds me sometimes in, in, on August 1st just sitting in my closet, rocking back and forth, repeating my, repeating my Houston summer survival mantra, which is, you don't have to shovel sunshine. Right, like if if I lived in Wisconsin, I would just get snowed in, and it would be miser- I'd be miserable in January because I couldn't leave the house. I get you get sunned in, right? You get sun, you can't leave the house here. So no, I think about January. This time always always gets me thinking about January because it's this, the start of school, the start of a new year. Um, and I think about the last time we started a new year. I think about and it, it's we're six months, seven months through the year, and I get to think about New Year's resolutions and how they're going. Anyone make New Year's resolution this year? No one admits it, right? Because at this point, at this point, yeah, I'm not going to say that. Um, because we all know what happened. Uh, we, we made it, and then we broke it, right? Six months later, if, or two months later, by, by Valentine's Day, your New Year's resolution is over. In fact, most people are just cynical about the whole process. They don't, uh, because we know more people who, who set New Year's resolutions and then fail at them, that we just kind of think that it's not a productive way of spending our time. Um, and I actually disagree, New Year's resolutions are a way that we kind of acknowledge that our lives aren't perfect. They acknowledge that we've kind of gotten off course, acknowledging that we are weak human beings that need a do-over. Okay, we need a reset button and we need to find a way to get our lives back on track. Maybe we need help uh, setting uh, more realistic goals, more reasonable goals. Maybe we need help uh, giving us ourselves the support to follow through. Um, a lot of, but setting the goals is not um, is not the problem because it reveals something intrinsic to our human heart, which means that we're not where we're supposed to be and we, and we long to get there. One of the New Year's resolutions that Christians frequently set is some sort of Bible reading New Year's resolution. You ever done this? You ever set a New Year's resolution to read through the Bible? Either it's I'm, I'm based, the basic one, which is I'm going to study the Bible more. 
to like the more, I'm going to read through the Bible in a whole year. And we get really excited. We have those gift cards that someone gave us over Christmas. And um, we go buy a read through the Bible in a year or something. But then all of a sudden, we start, in the, we start at the beginning. But by February, we're in Leviticus. And we have no idea what's going on anymore. We get really confused. And we just give up. So I guarantee you that if you're like, if you're like me, if you started one of these Bible reading um, resolutions in January, I guarantee you you're not doing it. If you are doing it, it's sporadically. And it's with this vague sense of guilt that you should, you should be doing something different. And that's what most Christians do. Either, either we don't study our Bible or we do and don't understand what we're supposed to get out of it. Um, or we carry this vague sense of guilt around us all, with us all the time. But when you look at Scripture, there's some pretty um, prominent uh, commands that we're supposed to follow. You know, 1 Peter 2 says, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Long for the word. Um, most of the time, the most many of us can muster is we don't long for the word. We you know, choke it down like we do vitamins or something. We know it's good for us, but we don't know, we don't know how it's supposed to be good for us. The best example is, is wheatgrass juice, right? How many of you ever tried wheatgrass juice? How many of you drink wheatgrass juice regularly? How many of you like wheatgrass juice? The hands got smaller. Um, I tried wheatgrass juice one time, and this woman said, we're, we're offering free samples of wheatgrass juice. Would you like to try it? I'm like, grass? No, 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 no I don't. Like, no, it's benefit. She listed all of the benefits of wheatgrass juice. I'm like, and it's free right now? Oh, yeah. Okay. So she, 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 she turns around, and she has a little lawn of grass on the counter behind her, and she cuts some. She cuts some puts it into a blender, and emulsifies it into this viscous goo, and she puts it in a cup in front of me. And I'm looking at it going, you want me to do what with this? And so I, I, I kind of down it really quickly. I choke it back all the while she, she's recounting its benefits, and, I'm, and I, I, I swallow it, and I'm like, that tastes so healthy. <laughs> you know? Um, do you know what it tastes like? Tastes like your lawnmower. Right, uh-huh. You know how you're, you know, it's like when you mow your lawn after it's rained, that's what it tastes like. Okay? Most of us treat the Word of God like that. Most of us treat the Bible like it's something that if we know we get, we know we're supposed to get something out of it, we know it's supposed to be nourishing for us, we know it's supposed to be good for us, and so we, if we ever uh, get ourselves to, uh, to, to take it, we, we down it like wheatgrass juice. We choke it down, we hope it's good for us, it definitely isn't satisfying, I know it's not nourishing, it didn't fill me up, but supposedly it's going to reap some benefits later. And when we approach the Word of God that way, what ends up happening is we go look for other more nourishing things to eat. I don't want to tell you what I ate after I drank that wheatgrass juice because <laughs> it didn't fill me up. It didn't satisfy me. I went and found something else. Um, and most of us do the same thing. Most of us, when we don't know how to draw nourishment from God's Word, we go find other sources of nourishment. Um, 1 John uh, 2 says uh, that all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the sinful pride of life, we go longing for and looking for and filling our lives with pleasure and possessions and position, hoping that that's going to satisfy the hole that we feel inside of us. But the Bible makes some pretty staggering claims about what will happen if we will learn to draw our nourishment, the only thing that will ever truly satisfy us from him. Uh, Psalm 1 starts out this way. How blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf doesn't wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. What if I was preaching a sermon on, on how to prosper as a Christian, or how to, how to experience fruitfulness in your life, or how to experience a foundation and strength and security? All of those things we long after, security, fruitfulness. We want our lives to matter for something. We want to know that, that we're safe, and we want to know that, that, we're, that our lives are going to outlive ourselves. Psalm 1 promises that if we will learn to plant our lives next, next to the nourishing stream of God's Word that, and drink up His promises, we will become that. So how do you do it? Um, how do we get from treating the Bible like it's wheatgrass juice to eagerly longing for, planting our lives by the nourishing stream of his promises uh, and seeing his transforming work happen in our midst. Well, what I want to look at is a scene in the Bible where we see it happen. There's a scene, uh, there's an event in the Bible that occurs in the Old Testament that, that gives us a window into this prayerful, worshipful, interactive Bible reading. It occurs in the book of Daniel. A um, little background, Daniel is, is a book in the Old Testament. He's one of the prophets. Maybe you're familiar with some aspect of the book of Daniel. Maybe you remember Daniel's diet. Or maybe you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Maybe you remember Daniel in the lion's den. Or maybe you remember that the whole end of the book of Daniel is a, um, is a whole bunch of prophecies about the coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Well, nestled in all of that, there's a place where we see Daniel read his Bible. And by watching how he reads his Bible, I think we can learn how to read it ourselves better and to draw nourishment from it. Um, Daniel was written around 500 B.C. And what had happened in the lives of the people of Israel at that time, about a hundred, in the last hundred years, had been characterized by calamity and disaster in the Jewish world. Um, because of their rebellion and sin, God had allowed uh, God's enemies to come in and conquer Israel. Uh, the, their people had seen their nation destroyed, their houses burnt, the temple demolished, and all of the people who hadn't been killed enslaved and carted off to Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And so these people are hundreds of miles from home. They have everything that they've ever known and hold dear uh, stripped, stripped from them, and their entire identity as God's people is called into question. They don't know who they are or what they're doing. And all of that sets the stage for Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, we have, we have Daniel, who decides to open up his Bible and start reading. Look at um, Daniel 9, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, that's a mouthful, that's extra points if you can say that, um, of Median descent, um, who was made king over the kingdom, kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel starts off uh, by reading the Bible. And his reading of the word, while he's reading it, he stumbles upon something that captures his attention. Daniel's reading has awakened a longing, has led to longing. Probably the passage in Jeremiah, a different Old Testament prophet written before the conquest of Israel, he's probably reading Jeremiah 29. And in Jeremiah 29, uh, it says this, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and will gather you from the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. Daniel was reading, and while he was reading scripture, he spotted something he desperately wanted to be true. He saw that God had promised an end. By the way, Jeremiah 20, 11, 29, 11, I read it just now. Um, for I know the plans I have for you, plans, not, plans of you, hope in a future, not for calamity. You've probably seen that on like a Christian t-shirt or a graduation announcement or something. It's important to remember that that passage was written to people who, had, had, who were absolutely convinced that God was mad at them and that God was crushing them and that God had cast them aside. That it was written to people who were feeling utterly oppressed and alone and were wondering if God was still working. And to that, God says, I know the plans I have for you. And they're good plans, they're not bad plans. Another important thing to remember about that is he doesn't say, let me tell you the plans I have for you. He says, you got to trust me. Trust that I'm a good God and trust that I have amazing plans. But Daniel reads this and the reading of the scripture opens up, um, opens up tremendous longing in his heart. He finds this one thing that he says, God's promised this. What's interesting, though, is he doesn't just go, oh, okay. He writes it in his day planner. Uh, Conquest of Jerusalem plus 70 years equals go home. And he shuts it and doesn't think about it. No. His reading of Scripture has led to longing. Daniel's longing leads to seeking. Daniel's longing leads to seeking. Look what happens next. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplication, with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his commandments and loving kindness for those who love and keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turned aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened uh, to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name uh, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. He sees a truth, and that truth leads him to seek God. And, a, and this passage right here shows what he does, how he goes about seeking the Lord. Um, he, he doesn't just gain Bible knowledge. He changes his life. The first thing it reveals is he sought the Lord interactively. He didn't just seek to know Bible facts. I don't know why this is such a scandalous thing to say, even in a church sometimes. But we serve a God that we claim to be real, living, personal, and active. We serve a God who still speaks. Um, I believe one of my favorite passages is, is Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, and it says this, God, after he had spoken to our fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us through his son. In fact, that's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews right there in the New Testament. It's all about a God who speaks to us primarily through Jesus, who is present and living and active and a part of our lives. And so Daniel seeks him interactively. He takes the facts he was learning about God and takes it from God he and turns it to God you. He addresses God in prayer. He, does, he understands that, that God doesn't call us to know uh, religious or philosophical facts about him. He calls us to engage in a relationship. He seeks the Lord interactively. Second, he seeks the Lord wholeheartedly. Uh, maybe the phrases fasting, sackcloth, and ashes uh, were troubling to you. Maybe you heard that and go, that sounds so Old Testament. Like, we don't do that anymore, sackcloth and ashes. In fact, it's, it has a, it's like, what do you say now, Steve? We need to get out the, uh, the penance things. You're going to make us do, you know, 47,000 Hail Marys. And, and are we, do we have to earn? Is this about earning salvation? It's not what this is, this is at all. Passages like uh, where Daniel says he sought the Lord with sackcloth and ashes and fasting simply reveal that he was seeking the Lord wholeheartedly. 
You see, we live in a society that, that our government has a separation of church and state. And what that's done for most people is most Americans carry this vague sense of, of, thought, of a thought pattern about religion that says religion is something that individual people do with their spare time. And so most of us, most of the time, give God the leftovers. And guess what? We live in, a, in a, an efficiency, productivity age where most of our lives don't have a lot of margin and there's not a lot of leftovers. And so most of us don't give God much. But you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. The fact that he put on sackcloth and ashes, he was engaged in repentance. And so it changed his behavior. It changed the way he looked and the way he ate. It changed everything about his life. His seeking after God was the center of who he was and what he was doing. He sought the Lord wholeheartedly. You know, some people say at this point, well, why is, um, surely you're just, making this up, right? God isn't really there. Why, if God is real, skeptical people say, if God is real, how come I, I can't see him? Where is he? How come I have to seek him with my whole heart? What's the deal? Doesn't this sound like you're just trying to get people overly invested and then they're psychologically committed to making sure they pretend it's true? Um, if God was real, he'd overwhelm my senses. Where is God? I think there's actually a real profound question. Why does God hide? Why, why is God not if the God we claim to be personal, real, why does he not directly, you know, able to be sensed by us all the time? I think a lot of people struggle with this. One of the answers to that question that the Bible gives is that God hides to reward seeking. That God has left enough in the world to make, uh, to make belief in him and seeking after him a very rational and reasonable thing. And he's left enough out of the world to allow sinful people to go about their business. He's going to let you go on your way. The gate is wide and the path is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who go that way. But the gate is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who even find it. You will seek and you will find when you seek with all your heart. And many of you know I, had, I got a lot of kids. We, I, I have four daughters, and then just this, this, this year we welcomed the birth of a, a fifth child, a son. So I have a, I have a little man cub. So... Yeah, <laughs> hallelujah. I tell people I was having kids till I get a boy or a girl's basketball team. So, so it worked out great. Um, but we named our son, we named our son Asa. Asa, after the Old Testament king, whose story is found, whose story is found in 2 Chronicles uh, 15, where it says, uh, Asa encouraged the people and they, they prayed and they sought the Lord diligently and God allowed himself to be found by them. You will seek the Lord. You will find God when you seek Him with all your whole heart. That's what Daniel was doing. He was seeking the Lord wholeheartedly. Um, third, uh, Daniel sought the Lord humbly. Daniel sought the Lord humbly. Um, at the very end of that passage that I just read about, uh, he, after he puts on sackcloth and ashes, he prays and he says, "God, uh, you're the one who keeps your commandments. You're the one who's full of covenant uh, loyal, lo uh, loyalty and loving kindness. We have we've we've disobeyed and we've neglected your prophets." At the, the very end, in verse seven, it says, uh, "Righteousness belongs to you and to us. Open shame." He understood uh, that to come to God humbly. The uh, <coughs> Excuse me. The <coughs> he, uh, you know, the New Testament is full of all these promises and encouragements for us to go boldly before God and have confidence entering, entering into God, into God's presence. And that's true. We are supposed to go boldly, but we don't go boldly because of our merit. 
We don't go boldly because of, what, because of, of who we are. We should know that we have nothing to offer God. We go boldly because of what Christ has done. In fact, that's what that word, you see the Old Testament word, sometimes loving kindness. It simply means God's covenant loyalty to us. It means God keeps his promises when we don't. It means God is faithful when we're not. It means God loves us and pursues us even when we fail to seek him. And so we can trust that we can go before God confidently, not because we're anything or have anything to offer him. We can go, we can go boldly, not because uh, we are strong and capable and successful. We can go do any of those things because of Christ who's gone, made a way before us. So we seek the Lord interactively. We seek the Lord wholeheartedly. We seek the Lord humbly. So da- Daniel's, uh, Daniel's reading led to longing. Daniel's longing led to seeking. And Daniel's seeking leads to finding. I look at the, um, at the end of this chapter, it's, we didn't read it yet, but at the end of this chapter, in, in 920, you, you have this verse. It says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sins of the people of Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God on behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in a previous vision, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked to me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I've come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding from the vision. Might seem kind of weird, but God gave an answer. Daniel prayed and sought, and God sent a messenger. That, that Hebrews passage I read, it said that, that, you know, that God speak, has spoken to our fathers through the prophets in many portions and in many ways. God does it differently for everybody. In this context, God answered Daniel's prayers by sending an angel. And that angel said, hey, Daniel, let me explain this all to you. And, and he, but it's important to realize the big picture, that God showed up. That Daniel's seeking led to finding. That, that sometimes we don't factor in God's presence into our life. We, don't, we pray these prayers, and sometimes we're actually bewildered and shocked when God answers them. But it's one of the most basic things that Jesus said, right? In, in Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, he simply said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. For some reason, this is a radical word that we don't, we don't have much experience of in our life, but that God promises if we will seek him, seek him with our whole heart, that we will find him, that he'll show up. So many times we're so used to this not happening that we end up doing God's work for him, right? Um, you listen to the prayers we pray sometimes. A lot of times the prayers we pray are either so, uh, so basic and obvious and we're going to happen anyway that it's like, oh, God answered our prayers. Like, oh, dear Lord, thank you for letting me. Uh, and it ends up being very unbold and, and non-risky. Or sometimes we pray these prayers and we think that God's not going to do anything, so we have to do it for him. We have to, we have to uh, be the answer to our own prayers. Or sometimes we pray and we figure, ah, God, you're probably going to do whatever you want, so we close things, then your will be done. Acknowledging God's will is a wonderful thing, but a lot of times it's, it's, a, it's a way of saying, but I guess you're going to do whatever you want anyway, so whatever. We're not used to seeking and finding. It requires us to wait. Some of us get impatient. It requires us, it requires us to acknowledge the gap between our own expectations and a God who does intervene, but not according to our time schedule and not in a way that we might expect. And sometimes we get nervous, and sometimes we do the work for him. But how do you do it? How do you model Daniel's uh, Daniel's scripture reading. How do you go from, okay, I, I, how do I read scripture and opening the words? How do I go from reading to longing to seeking 
to finding? How can I see the transformative promises of, of God in my life? How can, I, how can I be like that tree planted by streams of living water? And how can I experience the security and fruitfulness and prosperity promised? Well, I think that there are five, uh, five steps in, a, in like a method of prayerful scripture reading. And if you that come from this passage. And if you follow them, it's not like 100%. This is, this is not, the five steps I'm about to tell you aren't contained in Scripture anywhere. But this is just a helpful grid for me that I see, a, a, see made manifest in, in the story of Daniel and which has been helpful for me as I seek to, to seek the Lord interactively and wholeheartedly and humbly the way Daniel did. And the first, the first it's simply information. Read the Bible for information. Read the Bible to know what it says. Maybe you'd all, you could also call this stage observation. Okay, you're trying to figure out what the Bible actually says. And if you misunderstand this part, uh, you're not going to get anything else right after this. Right? Um, but most people stop here. Most people's Bible reading is uh, the acquisition of Bible facts. They know what the Bible says, and okay, and they move on. They're not sure what they're supposed to get out of it, but they read it. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning. The next step, longing, longing. Daniel was evidently reading all of Jeremiah, and it wasn't until he got to Je Jeremiah 29 that a passage popped, something that spoke to him, that grabbed his attention and said, said uh, and made Daniel say, this is something that I desperately want to see true in my life. I hope that, uh, that this is uh, something that God will fulfill. God has promised, and, and man, oh, I desperately want this to be true. So many times we think that the purpose of Bible study is to figure out the exhaustive commentary on every single passage, right? But that's not the case at all. You ever wonder why uh, you know, pastors can preach the different sermons on the same passage, right? They get, um, over and over again. It's because different things stand out each time. Because I'm different, because you're different. The word of, the God, word of God is the same, and, and God is the same, but we change, and so God speaks to us, says different, different things stand out for us at different times. So what's standing out? Don't worry about everything in the passage. Ask God, God, what are you trying to teach me in this passage? What, what stands out as something that's challenging, convicting, encouraging? What awakens that longing of, of desperation? I hope and I long to see for this to be true in my life. Third, affirmation. Affirmation. This is where you say, um, here's a truth I've read in God's word um, that I long to be true. I am going to affirm that God's word is reliable, that God is, um, that God is faithful, and that it is true. I'm going to affirm it. I'm going to say that I'm not going to doubt that it's, that it's true. I'm going I'm to affirm that it's a true. What's weird is most people, if you get past step one, you end up stopping at step three. Most of us live in some blind faith where we, where we intellectually assent to various truths we consider to be facts about Christianity. But to be honest, it's been a long time since we've seen them active in our lives. That we will say, God, I know this is true, but when I look around, I don't see very much evidence. It's an important stage. Having faith that God's word is true is a very important stage, but even this is not the end. Four, invocation. Invocation. This is where you say, God, I found this truth in your word. I found this truth in your word. It is spoken to me directly, and I desperately want uh, it to be true in my life. And it's in your word, and so I'm going to acknowledge that it is true. But I got to be honest. I don't see it. I, it, doesn't, I don't feel, it doesn't feel true right now. Maybe that sounds too touchy-feely for you right now. But read the Psalms. 
The Psalms are full of all the things that people have felt comfortable saying to God. People say on the one hand, God, you've said you protect us, and you've said, but where are you? Wake up. There are all these passages in the Psalms about wake up, O Lord, and do something. I'm looking around, and I don't see you active, and you say you're active, and I don't see it. Please make it true. Help me to see how you're, how you're at work. Where you pray to God, you say, God, I acknowledge that this truth in your word is, is, is 100% true because you gave it. But I'm also going to need to tell you that I don't see it true in my own life. Will you please help me to see it? In my, make it true in my life. And the last stage is appropriation. I, don't have an, I didn't have a good shun word there. If you can think of a shun word for longing, you let me know. I couldn't think of one. So I just, but it's long is all I got. But appropriation, it's a fancy word for waiting on God. To, to waiting, waiting for God to make it true and active and real in your own life. This is where you don't do God's work for him. It's where you actually wait. Obey the things you know to obey, do the things you know to do, and trust that if there is a real and living and personal and active God, that he will fulfill his word to you. Here's the, one of the best examples of this comes from Psalm 40. Uh, Psalm 40 says this, and as I read this, I want you to listen. I want you to listen to the psalmist, the author. Try to figure out how many things he does in this psalm and listen to how many things he attributes to the activity of God. Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined to me and he heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. All right, how many things did the psalmist do? How many things? One, you could probably get away with two. He, he, it's, the, he, he waited, but, he, but before he waited, what did he do? Yeah, he cried out. He says, God heard my cry. So he cried out to God, and he waited. What did God do? God heard God lifted him up out of the negative place he was, put him in a positive place, a place of security and strength, and put a new song in his heart. Okay, this is, every time the, every time the, um, the Psalms talk about, I will sing a new song to the Lord, or God gave me a new song, um, sometimes it always means some guy who wrote a new song, right? Some, somebody to sing us a new song. It simply means that God doesn't just rescue us from things. He puts us positively where we're supposed to be and he changes our tune. He changes our song from one of lament or one of anxiety or one of worry or fear, and he changes it to a song of praise. Look what God has done. Wait on him like, like I did, and you will see God's activity in your life. This seems to be the method. Uh, this seems to be a helpful grid for understanding how to seek after the Lord. In fact, something that I've it's transformed the way I prayerfully read the Bible. I, I carry with me, um, with my Bible, these little notebooks, right? They, uh, they're about the same size. And uh, Buddy's happy because he's got a cub sticker on the back. And so, um, but what I do is I write, I write my sermons in it. I write, you know, various things I want to remember, important quotes. And I'll write the verses, the verses as I read them that God has grabbed a hold of my attention and to try to speak to my heart to say, look, I'm with you and I'm near. Here's, here's one. One day I was reading Psalms, Psalm 34, 4. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all of my fears the time in my life, I was, I was worried about a lot of things. And so I simply wrote, please answer me, God. Please deliver me from my fears. I feel terribly afraid right now. And maybe you read the passage, the Lord's close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Well, God, I feel pretty crushed in spirit right now. Are, are, you, 
Are you really close? I don't feel it. Again, feeling is not the highest thing, but, but sometimes we don't invite the activity of God in our life to make it manifest because we're so content to stay on the, on the realm of just intellectual assent. God wants to speak to you. God does speak. God calls us into relationship with him, and God seeks to, um, God promises to be close to us. He is close to us. God calls us to seek him, and when we seek him, we will find him when we seek with our whole heart. God invites us uh, to seek him through the study of Scripture. If we will do so, um, he promises to meet us. He promises to fill us with, um, with the truth of his word and to transform us. And to see, We'll see the trees of our life uh, grow into, into the security and the fruitfulness and the prosperity that he promises. Where's this hitting you this morning? Maybe, it's, maybe, it's, maybe you're on the outside looking in. Maybe you've never trusted Christ, and maybe you're not trying to follow God. And the idea that there is a God who calls you to seek him, the God who knows you, the God who loves you, the God who desires to be in relationship with you, and if you will seek him, you will find him standing right there really close. Maybe it's startling to you the fact that, that, that God does uh, interact with you desire to be in relationship with you. Maybe, maybe you're a new Christian, have never even thought about studying the Bible. The Bible is something that I study up here, or that the, the preacher, the teachers, they're the ones who teach me about, but I've never actually placed upon myself the responsibility of seeking God and to do so by planting my, my life next to, the, next to the stream of his promises. Maybe God is calling you to, uh, to, to, to take the Bible, to start reading it. Maybe uh, you're a believer who's, who's spent so many years uh, in fruitless Bible study. You, you understand a lot of Bible facts, but it's been a while since you've seen the activity of God in your life and the reality of God's truths manifest in your experience. And maybe you need to prayerfully call out to God and say, God, I, I want this to be true. I know it's true. but How come my life feels so far away from the security and the fruitfulness and the prosperity that you promise? I don't know what you need to do with this. I do know, though, that if we will find a way to read, that reading will awaken in us longing as God speaks to our heart and grabs our attention and motivates us. And if we will seek him, we will find. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're a God that speaks. Thank you that you're a God that hears. Thank you that you hear our words, that you, are, that you, are, you promise to be close and you promise to, to hear our prayers and you promise to answer. Father, we ask you to, uh, to help us be faithful students of your word, not so that we can know more Bible facts and not so that we can uh, you know, learn more about what you did in the past, but so that we can know you. Help us to experience the, the strength and the fruitfulness that you promise if we will plant ourselves by the, by the stream of your word. Father, help us in reading your word. Help us to, to long for you. Help us to seek you and find you when we seek you with our whole heart. Father, awaken in us desire, awaken in us a tremendous longing uh, to live our lives according to, the, uh, according to how you've called us to live. And all these things, Father, build us into the people you desire us to be. Shape us, mold us. Uh, may we see your activity in our midst. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.